How are we setting on the audio? Are we working? Good? All right, lights are on, green for go, happy. Having read Hebrews 11 already, let's turn our, in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at Ephesians 6, verse 16. As we begin, let's begin with verse 10, and we'll read through verse 20. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds and hearts, that we might be able to understand and receive what you have for us. That our minds would not just take in information, but that our hearts would be transformed. We pray this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Our core reality today as we are looking at Ephesians 6.16, very simple, pretty boring, tried to make it boring. I had some really clever, they were brilliant. I mean, I can't even tell you how brilliant they were. But we don't want clever words, we want the truth of God's word. Core reality is this. We overcome the enemy's attacks by knowing and choosing the truth of God's word. Nothing exciting, simply true and powerful. We overcome the enemy's attacks by knowing and choosing the truth of God's word. Now, as we are getting into this, the reason that I drew our attention to Hebrews 11 earlier is because it is a different picture of faith than what so many Christians that I know hold in their hearts. We tend to think of faith as some mystical foreign substance that God smears on us when we get saved somehow. This feeling, this, this emotion. And that's exactly the opposite of everything we see in Scripture, so well encapsulated in Hebrews 11, 
You can keep your place marked there in Ephesians. And let's turn back to Hebrews 11 for just a few moments. Moving to the right toward the back of the book. In Hebrews 11, the first verse is crucial if we're going to understand how we are to take up the shield of faith so that we'll be able to extinguish or quench the flaming arrows of the evil one. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We, to have faith, do not need to be special people. It's not something that some people are just better at. They're just born that way. There are some very clear pictures that we get here of folks who struggled with doubt and fear, even rebellion and resistance to God's will, and yet they are singled out here as people of faith because after they had wrestled with the fears and the doubts, after they had wrestled with their own sin, and come to humble themselves before God, they knew God was telling the truth. They didn't merely believe in God, not, didn't just mentally assent to the reality that there is a creator. That's natural for us, by the way. All of us are born to believe. We have to talk ourselves into atheism. We work really hard to convince ourselves that the world is randomly created despite order everywhere but before i digress into my little soapbox about intelligent design and a personal creator we we need to recognize that the folks in chapter 11 of hebrews are not people who felt good all the time they're not even people who did god's will without stumbling and even tripping over themselves. Instead, they are those who were confident in what they hoped for and assured of what they do not see. In fact, we're told at the end of the chapter that all of the people listed, all these Old Testament saints, still had not seen it when they died. They were still hoping for the future. They were still looking forward to God keeping his word. And then they died. That did not change one thing about their faith. Only now, in the bosom of Abraham, they were able to see what they could not see in their earthly lives. Christ. We have the benefit of being on this side of the cross and we can look back and see the mystery that they saw from the mountaintops revealed in fullness in Christ. We get to see what even Moses and Abraham and Isaiah couldn't see. The fullness of who he is. And we will know even more when all things come to fruition in the final day. But for now like these saints of old, and I don't think it's insignificant that everybody listed here was before Christ came. 
Now we could say the same thing about the, the apostles and the disciples who followed Christ, that they lived by faith. We could say that about the, uh, the saints throughout church history who faced persecution and trusted in God's word even when everything around them seemed to say that they were being abandoned. We could say that about those in persecuted countries now who pray for deliverance and find persecution and yet hold to what they know to be true. All of them lived by this kind of faith and are even living today by this kind of faith. No, it's not about emotion. It's not about looking the part. It's not about necessarily saying the right words. It's about knowing what you know. Even when everything around you says, are you sure about that? See, in Genesis chapter 3, that was the problem that Eve ran into. When the serpent came and said to her, did God really say? She thought she knew, but she twisted God's words a little bit. And so the serpent said, he didn't really say that. And because she got off, she got sideways of what God said, added to what God said, went above the line, so to speak. When the devil came back to her with, he didn't say that. And really, he's holding back from you, right? God, God's not telling you the whole story. And he caused her to doubt God's character. She listened to an opposing voice that deceived her and took her eyes off the prize. Faith, as we see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is different. It's keeping your eyes on the prize. That's why we read into Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. There's all kinds of stuff swirling around in the world, isn't there? And there's even more. You know, there's all this swirling around in the real world, and then there's the fake world of social media. Whew, lots of stuff swirling around there, right? We can get really confused really quickly, amen? There's all sorts of dissension and division, anger and hatred. Man, we don't know how to have a debate or a conversation anymore because as soon as you disagree with me, I have to see you as the devil and I need to convince you and everybody else that you are the devil. All of these things swirling around us with the purpose and intent to take our eyes off what matters. The devil is launching flaming arrows at you. And it's not generally the big things. It's the little things. The subtle things. See, we've been talking about the armor of God and the, the belt of truth that wraps everything up, holds it together. It's foundational to the armor. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and, and as we cling to His righteousness, we guard our hearts. And we talked about feet fitted with the proper footwear, the readiness that comes 
from the gospel of Christ, understanding the reality of who Jesus is. When a soldier went into battle in first century Rome, they could have all of this stuff on, but arrows from archers can pierce those things, can find the gaps. And so they needed their shield as well. Now, without spending a lot of time looking at the arrows and the shield, and I had a great time looking through some, uh, some historic things, that's, that's fun. We're not going to do that today. Instead, we want to get back to the text. We overcome the enemy's attacks by knowing and choosing the truth of God's word. We need to take up the shield of faith. And as we do this, we are going to have to recognize that faith is a choice. Faith is knowing what we hope for. Being confident in it. We've talked before about the biblical concept of hope. The, the New Testament word here in the Greek is elpis, and it, it most often is used in the same way as the Old Testament phrase, which universally in the Old Testament is, is essentially synonymous with confidence and trust. And the nuance here in, the, in, in almost all of the uses, not all, but almost all of the uses of this Greek term in the New Testament are confident expectation. It's not the wishful desire, not, boy, I, I hope it's sunny tomorrow, or I hope I get a new bike for Christmas. It's not that. It's confident expectation of something that is certain to happen, but has not yet happened, right? When I go to the, to the train station and I uh, am ready to get on the train to go to Chicago, I know that it is coming at a particular time. It hasn't yet happened, and so I'm looking forward to that with a confident expectation. I'm not thinking, boy, I sure hope the train shows up. That, that could be a problem. Right Now, I, I might not show up, but the train's going to show up. The same thing is applicable in our understanding of our hope in the Bible. It's our confident expectation of something that has not yet happened, but will with certainty. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, faith is really just holding on to what is true even when you don't see it coming to pass. Even when it doesn't feel true, it doesn't sound true, it doesn't smell true. All of your senses are saying, eh, I don't know if I can trust this, but holding to it anyway. Because you know that your senses, your feelings can betray you. He talks about trusting that the universe was formed at God's command. It's an interesting thing to start here. He works through the story of the book of Genesis. And as he writes this, he's not talking about a faithful person in the Bible. He's talking about you and I believing what the Bible says about something we can't go back to to see. That's why all origin science is speculative, it's forensic in nature. 
because we can't empirically reproduce it. We don't have any witnesses who were there. And so we have to put together our best scientific guesses. And what we're saying here is, however that evidence works out, by faith we know that God did what God said he did. Period. Not, not against evidence, but we recognize that one way or another the evidence will point us to that. And we need to interpret in light of that. Then he goes on to talk about, uh, <clears throat> to talk about Abel. Now we don't know a whole lot about Abel from Genesis chapter 4, but we see that God was pleased with his sacrifice. By faith, he brought God a better offering than Cain did. We can preach all kinds of things about what the difference was between their sacrifices, between their offerings, but it's all made up. Anybody who's preaching you all that stuff, I would run because it's not there. But this passage looks back and fills in the gaps. Throughout the entire Bible, all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices had to be offered in faith. And so the writer of Hebrews fills this in. Why was Abel's better? Faith. What about it? I don't know. It doesn't say. Faith. He trusted God. God accepted his sacrifice. Then he goes on to talk about Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham and, and all these others and each one of them even gets to the point where it's like, man, I got so many more stories to tell you, but we don't have time. I can identify. And, and as he is going through all of these things, each one of these people is looking forward to something. And they are trusting that God is true even when their experience says otherwise. When God told Abraham, you're going to have a whole nation come from you. He's like, uh, but I'm old, and my wife's old, and she can't have kids. Sarah heard it. She laughed. And yet here she's called faithful. It's because of her faith that she was able to walk through this. God does what God does, and sometimes our flesh, our emotions, our feelings can't keep up. Right? Our faith isn't based on those things. It's bigger. Let's get to it. So in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, we're told in addition to all of this armor that we've been talking about, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. First, let's look at this take up. Real quickly, while faith is the gift of God, it is also a choice. While faith is the gift of God, it's also a choice. Turn back just a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Familiar passage for us. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Paul writing, same letter to the same people about the same topics, and he says, For it is by grace you have been saved. How have you been saved? By grace. Right? By grace we've been saved. And how do we get a hold of that? Through faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And then he clarifies, he wants us to make sure we understand. By grace you've been saved. Your faith doesn't save you. God's grace does. You take hold of this by faith. But understand, 
This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Interesting. I always thought it was my choice. I I always thought it was my ability to trust God. Well, it is. (laughs) But where do you think you got that ability to trust God? Is it because you were so holy? Because your pure heart is better than your neighbor's pure heart? That you're able to see what they do not see? If that were the case, then maybe we would be able to boast that there was something innately better in me. And some teach this. That God sovereignly looks and chooses based on the fact that he already knows that you're one of the good guys. That you're going to accept the truth. It's not based on anything but his sovereign grace. Turn, if you would, back to the, to the left a few, few more pages to the book of John. Past the Corinthian letters and Romans and Acts. Go to John chapter 1. John the Apostle, probably the, the most intimate friendship that Jesus had on earth. He writes this at the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So who is the Word? Who is it? Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. He is God. There's no one like him. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not this John, the other John. John the Immerser, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, the light that shines in the darkness, but has not been overcome by the darkness. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, you don't inherit it, you're not born into it. Interesting part here, nor of human decision. It's those who believed in his name, and yet not from human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Back to Ephesians 6. We're talking about faith. Faith that is the gift of God. 
Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. You must receive the gift of faith to have your sinful eyes opened, to have your stone heart removed and a flesh heart put in its place. Otherwise, you can hear the word all day long, you can process the information, and you will be unchanged. But you still have to choose it. It's a gift from God, but if you don't choose it, it does no good. Therefore, God is still sovereign and man is still responsible. Faith is the gift of God. It's also a choice. This is why he tells us to take up this shield. The shield is something that we have to actually use. Take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. A variety of shields were used in the Roman Empire. They evolved over time. The, uh, the early ones drew from the uh, drew from the, uh, the Greek shields. They were round uh, in their nature. They weren't very protective. But as they, as they evolved and in different settings, the Romans used a number of different kinds. Paul seems to be referring here to the large, the, the large shield, the scutum, which was used by foot shoals. Easy for me to say. Foot soldiers, the legionnaires, as they were marching together, they would use these large shields that were big enough for a crouching soldier to get his entire body behind. They were uh, made, at this time, in the first century, primarily made of three plies of wood glued together, bound on the edges with metal, later with stitched leather. They were covered with canvas and leather. And they protected the entire body. So I've got my, my armor on and I am behind my shield. Okay, the shield protects me this way. <clears throat> Those on horseback had smaller shields. There were, they evolved over time, but this was the nature of them. In any case, his metaphor shows faith as our protection against the devil's attacks. We need to understand that biblical faith is something quite different than the, from the mystical picture that we often have in our minds. As usual, the Bible tends to be much more tangible and practical, even in supernatural things, than human religious constructs. Mark this down. Faith is not a feeling. It is choosing truth in spite of feelings. Faith is not a feeling. It is choosing truth in spite of feelings. Feelings cannot be trusted. They can often tell you what's going on, but they're not a good way to get direction. And if we let our feelings drive, they will often take us to a very dark and bad place. Faith says, regardless of what I'm feeling right now, God said this, therefore I know it is true. How many of you have heard people say, God is good all the time? To which people respond, all the time God is good. And very often that is a trite, silly thing because people don't actually believe it. So we say that when God is giving us good things. We seldom say that when we get that cancer diagnosis. When my loved one has COVID and is in the hospital. When my spouse betrays me and leaves me, very seldom do we shout, 
God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Faith is recognizing the truth of that statement in the darkest storms. It's recognizing that I love my spouse when we're fighting over how to handle the money, not just on the honeymoon. Anybody can love their spouse on the honeymoon. Most of the time, some of you might have sketchy stories. Don't wreck my metaphor. Remembering that love is more than a feeling is exactly what we're talking about with faith. God said it. I will trust it. Even when everything around me says otherwise. Faith is not a feeling. It's choosing truth in spite of feelings. It's choosing to believe what I know to be true, even when it doesn't feel true in the moment. Mark this down next. Faith is essentially aligning my thoughts with reality. We've said this so many times here at Real Life in various forums. Faith is essentially aligning my thoughts with reality. I recognize that despite how things seem, there is a reality that is greater. And even when I don't see it, I know it's true. When the sun is shining on a beautiful day, we can see the sun and we can recognize it, and it brings about feelings that are often happy, sometimes hot, but we get this, this beautiful sun. And how easy it is for us to forget on those overcast, dreary days, even in London and Seattle, where you don't, might not see the sun so much. The sun hasn't changed The sun is doing the same thing in the same place, the same way, giving life and heat that it always has. But obstacles are blocking our view. Faith is knowing that the sun hasn't gone anywhere. Faith is essentially aligning my thoughts with reality. It's trusting the truth of God's word when circumstances conspire to convince me that it's not true. Faith is choosing to trust in a thing as true and confirming my faith by action. Trusting that a thing is true and confirming that faith by action. In other words, if I believe a thing to be true, I will act in accordance with that belief. If I merely claim it to be true, but I don't actually believe, then contrary, excuse me, I don't actually believe in the reality of that, I'm going to inevitably act according to what I actually believe, contrary to what I claim to believe. I stumbled over that and it's confusing enough anyway, so let me try it again. If I merely claim a thing to be true, but I don't actually believe in the reality of it, I will inevitably act according to what I do actually believe, and act contrary to what I claim to believe, right? So what I do shows where my thoughts actually are. If I believe that God is good all the time, that's going to show up in how I handle adversity. Now, lots of people can put on a a good game face and act to other people like everything is great and smile through the difficulties but if i really believe it 
I don't have to put on the game face. Because my reality is reflected in my behaviors. And I can mourn, I can grieve, I can weep, I can even fear and doubt, but I am okay with that because I know that in the midst of my fear and doubt, God is still good. In the midst of this bad diagnosis, God is still good. When I stand at the grave of my loved one, God is still good, and it has not changed, and it cannot change, and therefore I can weep and grieve, but not as those who have no hope. I can enter into it honestly, not despairing, and also not denying. I'm inevitably going to act according to what I actually believe, regardless of what I say. Furthermore, my actions will reinforce the beliefs, the beliefs that they reflect. My actions will reinforce the beliefs that they reflect. So that works like this. If I give in to fear, doubt, temptation, pride, etc., whatever it is that I'm giving into in these things, I strengthen that false belief. Right? So if I if I say God is good all the time, but then something bad happens. And I give in to that, oh man, God has abandoned me. The more I give in to those things, the more I start to believe those false beliefs. The devil's going to whisper things in our ears all the time. We'll get to flaming arrows in a little bit. He's going to whisper things in our ears all the time. And when I believe those things and then I act upon that false belief, it strengthens that false belief in me. And it undermines my faith in what is real and true. Likewise, if I feel the same temptations, but I choose to align my thoughts with what I knew to be true in my clearer moments, and therefore act in obedience according to the faith I'm choosing, it therefore strengthens my belief in the truth of God's word. Obedience strengthens our faith. When I believe it, even when I don't feel it, so I act on it because I choose to continue to believe it, that will confirm my faith and strengthen my belief. The great philosopher Marion Robert Morrison, some of you may know him better as John Wayne, said that courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. I was reminded late last night that I have quoted that a lot. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. As I choose to act in spite of my fears, I strengthen my ability to overcome that fear next time. Action and faith go hand in hand. This is why when I began roofing, because I was out of money, and when you're out of money... You know, you do what you got to do, right? I did not tell my employer that I was deathly afraid of heights and especially ladders. Yes, I lied. He said, are you afraid of heights? Heck no. At least not near as much as I'm afraid of an empty bank account, so let's go. And the first roof I got onto, some of you know this story, happened to be our old barn. I'm 40 feet up in the air. <laughs> and... My dear friend and beloved employer had us on a long ladder in the back of a, 
dump truck on an uneven surface, so it's got shims underneath the ladder. <laughs> and I was scared to death. If you've ever watched Tom and Jerry, when, when Tom is like, you know, falling and he's scared and he like sticks the claws through the wall, that was me on this roof. <laughs> but he had his 14-year-old son up there and I couldn't chicken out and let him look tougher than me, so I got up there. But you know what, by the end of that job, the rest of the roof seemed pretty easy. By the end of that summer, my fear of heights was gone. I don't get on roofs anymore, so it's back. But anyway, the, <laughs> the more we do a thing, despite the fear, the better we become at seeing past the fear. And it's, don't misunderstand. It's not a matter of being strong enough to overcome that fear. We overcome the fear by seeing past it by seeing something that we regard as a greater, deeper, more profound reality. That's what faith is. It's aligning my thoughts with reality. And when I act on that, it strengthens it. Or as Dr. Tony Evans says, faith is acting like it is so, even when it is not so, in order that it might be so, simply because God said so. It's acting as if God's telling the truth because I know that he's telling the truth because God can't lie. That really is all it is. That is the simplest way I can boil this down. Just believing that God is telling the truth. Now, the strength of my faith will grow in proportion to my knowledge of the truth. To borrow from Neil Anderson and uh, he's the author of Victory of the Darkness and the Bondage Breaker, founder of Freedom in Christ Ministries. He used to put it this way. Uh, it's been said that there are 7,000 promises of God in the Bible. I can't confirm that. I'm not taking the time to count that. That's silly to me. But let's assume that that's true. If there are 7,000 promises of God in the Bible, and I know all of those promises, and I believe and trust all of those promises, my faith can be very strong. But if I only know seven of those promises, the strength of my faith can't get past those seven promises. i got a seven-promise faith. And if I learn more and I get a 700, I'm going to have a 700-promise faith. If I have 7,000, then I'm going to have a 7,000-promise faith. You all can see how the math goes. The better I know God's Word, the better I understand God's character, the more I have something I can hold on to when everything around me is conspiring to tell me that it's not true. I can cling to that. And I can watch God keep his promises. But if I have faith without knowing the promises, then my faith in faith does nothing for me. That's like me trying to, to jump out of an airplane trusting a parachute that I don't have. And I'm yanking for a ripcord, but there's no parachute. I'm not jumping out of any airplanes. I'll leave that to JD. I'm not doing that stuff, right? So if I put faith in the fact that I have faith, and my faith is the point, so we sell, tell people all the time, just believe, right? Just have faith. That's kind of worthless advice. I learned once upon a time from a great thinker named R. Kelly uh, as I was 
as I was watching Space Jam, that if I believe enough, I can fly. I have discovered since that apparently I don't believe enough (laughs) because I can't fly. We try to, you know, I've been saying silly things, and, and I don't mean to make this trite, but we do that. We reduce faith in the reality of the living God down to the silliness of if I just believe it hard enough. So our Christianity becomes Dorothy clicking her heels together in Oz. It's great for a movie and a story, but it's not getting you back to Kansas. You need the balloon for that. If we're going to have faith, it's not really about the strength of our faith. But the object of our faith, which brings me to the next point. Faith is not about me. It's about remembering the truth. Faith is not about me. It is about remembering the truth. The strength of my faith matters little. The object of my faith matters much. How much I believe in the parachute doesn't help. What helps is actually having a parachute. That's what matters. However, learning to choose faith, to take it up as a shield, doesn't just happen. It's learned. It must be practiced. In much the same way that I got past my fear of heights by doing that very thing that scared me to death, faith requires a choice that is repeated over time. I have to keep doing it. Not just once, not just twice. Over and over and over again. Here is my circumstance, and it seems too big. I don't think I can trust God. Most of us don't say that out loud, right? But somewhere in our hearts, there's that little nagging voice. As if God's going to somehow drop the ball. If we believe it and we know it, that doesn't mean we feel it. It means that when we don't feel it, we have to choose it anyway. And the more times I choose it, the weaker the feelings become and the stronger the faith becomes. It's not about me. It's about remembering the truth. It's learned. It must be practiced. We tend to think and talk about having enough faith or strong enough faith. But Jesus was very clear with his mustard seed comments that the amount of strength, the amount, the amount of faith or the strength of the faith is unimportant. If you got faith like a mustard seed, and we, we turn that into slogans and stuff, it's not about slogans. It's about understanding this is a tiny, tiny seed. And if you have tiny, tiny faith, weak, pathetic faith, but you got some faith, you believe what God says. It isn't really about how strong your faith is. It's entirely about how strong God is. Is he telling the truth? Does he ever lie? Does he ever fail? I'm going to ask you that again, and I want you to respond with what you actually believe. Is God telling the truth? Does God ever lie? Does God ever fail 
Let me throw you another one. Do your circumstances ever cause you to feel opposite of those things? Faith is choosing truth in spite of our feelings. It's not about me. It's not about how strong my faith is. It's not about whether I'm able to believe it. I am able to believe it. If you love Jesus, if you, if you look at the gospel and you say, wow, I'm a sinner, I can't be with God, my only hope is that Jesus Christ died in my place, then he has already opened your eyes and given you the ability to trust him. If you've gotten to that point, you only got to that point because God opened your eyes. So the question of whether or not you are able to have faith is no longer a question. The question now is, will you take it up as a shield? Will you choose it? Will you choose to be certain of what you hope for and sure of what you do not see? What matters is believing God, remembering that He does not lie or fail to keep His word, even when everything around me seems to be telling me otherwise. The shield of faith is the thing that we're taking up. We're taking it up with a purpose. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish. Real quick, mark this down. We cannot stop the enemy from attacking, but we can act to protect against him. We cannot stop the enemy from attacking, but we can act to protect against him. This is, in a sense, a reiteration of the taking up thing. If you do this, if you make this choice to believe the truth, even when your senses tell you otherwise... If you, in the words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, even when it doesn't feel right, and you say, you know what, God is still good all the time. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't see what he's doing. I don't think it's possible. You know, Sarah's 99 years old. How in the world is she going to have a baby? This is not going to happen. But God said it. Therefore, I know it's true. That's all. When I do that, I am taking action to protect myself against the enemy's attacks. He can keep bringing it. He can bring bad circumstances. Raise your hand if you've ever felt like you've gone through a stretch where it was just wave after wave after wave. You come out of one trial and another one smacks you in the face. Anybody? Yeah. Some days it's just like, why did I even get out of bed? Some months can feel like, why did I even get out of bed? Some of you, some years. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why it goes that way sometimes. Why is this person going through it and the other person isn't? That's above my pay grade. What I do know is that every single thing that the enemy intends as a weapon God has ordained as a tool he is using what what Satan intends to shipwreck you with he is using to shape you that's the goal that's the purpose and he doesn't fail we cannot stop the enemy from attacking it's going to happen it's a when when the day of evil comes not if he's coming after you He hates you. You are a defector from his kingdom because every single one of us used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. 
But if you have received Christ, you have been transferred. Your citizenship has been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. You are no longer darkness. You are now light in the Lord. And you better believe the devil hates a traitor. We cannot stop him from attacking. But by choosing truth over feelings, we can act to protect against him. Let's move on. With which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows... The enemy's attacks are intended to inflame the flesh. The enemy's attacks are intended to inflame the flesh. He wants to appeal to our senses. He wants to use the world and the flesh to get to us. As we've discussed before, the battlefield for the believer is the mind. He can't take you out of God's hand. He can't separate you from the love of Christ. But if He can get you so deceived, distracted, and discouraged that you live as if you are still in bondage, so that you don't experience the victory and freedom that Christ has already purchased for you, that's the next best thing for Him. I can't bring them to hell, but I can sure make them miserable on earth. We can overcome this by not allowing our feelings, our flesh, to take our eyes off the truth. The enemy's attacks are intended to inflame the flesh. He does this to the detriment of the spirit. So if we walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, then we will not give in to his attacks, these flaming arrows. Next, notice this. We are tempted to live contrary to our identity in Christ by these three things. First, by thinking according to our old nature. We are tempted to live contrary to our identity in Christ by thinking according to our old nature. This is the content of the letter of Ephesians. Paul is writing to them, explaining, this is who you now are in Christ. You have been chosen and adopted. Your future is settled. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. What is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of you. You were dead. You've been brought to life. The old person is gone. Jumping to the second chapter of, uh, of the Corinthians, of, of fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. You're a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. So we don't think the same way anymore. And he's telling us over and over, as we've seen in the last several chapters, that we are new. Therefore, our thinking is new. And with our new identity leading to new thinking, that leads to new acting, new character. The devil tempts us, whispers in our ear, tries to trick us so that we think according to our old nature, trusting our own understanding holding a secular worldview, thinking that we can syncretize, we can blend together the worldview of the masses in a world that is designed and controlled by the devil to be contrary to God. We think we can take on the worldview, the educational perspectives, the morality perspectives of this world and still be Christian. That's according to our old thinking. We listen to deceiving voices, to preachers and authors who are quick to tickle our itching ears, 
We're tempted to live contrary to our identity in Christ also by acting according to our old nature. First by thinking, then by acting. How many of you know thinking leads to action, right? How I think in my mind, in my heart, that's how I'm going to live. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I like to steal the King James every once in a while. We're tempted to live contrary to identity in Christ by acting according to our nature. How does that work? By pursuing the urges of our flesh at the expense of holiness. It grows out of our, our thinking. Our thinking, when I start to think like the world, then I start to act like the world. If I start to think like who I used to be rather than who I am in Christ, then I'm going to act like who I used to be. And I'm not going to look like Christ. I'm going to look like everybody else. And it will seem normal. Because if you're in Christ, I'm going to say this as spiritually as I can for you. If you're in Christ, you are made to be weird. The Bible says we're a peculiar people. In other words, all y'all are weird. You're not like everybody else. Everybody else is just going along like a bunch of lemmings. And they're all falling off a cliff into destruction. And it seems great in this world. Man, don't be jealous of the wicked unbeliever when they seem to have good things. When you want some good stuff too, how do they get that nice car? Why, doesn't their, why, why do their kids obey them better? Why do they seem to be more respectful? Why does everybody else get more than I got? Because they're going off a cliff. They might as well enjoy it. There's more. It's really weird when you're the one lemming who says, dudes, what are you doing? It's a cliff. Don't go off. And they're like, weirdo. Why, why are you going against everybody? What's wrong with you? And it takes a lot of faith to keep seeing the cliff when everybody else is going the same direction. We're tempted to live contrary to our identity in Christ by thinking according to our old nature, by acting according to our old nature, lastly, by feeling according to our old nature. Our thinking leads to our acting, and the, the behaviors that we carry out will lead to feelings. We develop habits when we do a thing over and over, including habits of thinking, and these habits lead to feelings. If my thinking is off, if my thoughts are not aligned with truth, then my feelings will not be aligned with reality. And I will feel things that seem real, that seem true, but are not. We're tempted to allow our emotions to drive us, feeding back into our old thinking. Feeling the dominant negative emotions that belong to our old nature. And one of the biggest that the devil loves to use against us is feeling isolated from God and other believers as if he or they reject us for our failures. The devil loves to get in your head so that you believe that people are judging you. When most of the time, they're probably not thinking about you at all. But when the devil gets in our head, we can walk into a room and feel like everybody sees us in a negative light. 
Nobody wants me. I don't belong here. I don't fit in. I'm all alone. God can't possibly love me. These are the things the devil wants us to feel. And if we let those feelings hang around long enough, they become thoughts. And if we let those thoughts hang around long enough, they become beliefs. They drive our actions, and the cycle begins again. He works on our thinking, our acting, and our feeling to drag us back, to cause us to live as who we used to be rather than who we are. He causes us to question our own salvation. Causes us to believe a worldly perspective of the church. We're to, to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. I won't take long on this, but we need to understand that the enemy is real, personal, and evil. The enemy is real, personal, and evil. The devil's not a cute little dude with horns and a pitchfork and a little tail that you dress up as for Halloween or you, you know, put as a sticker on your car. It's not cute. Stop it. The devil is evil. And he hates you. Don't play around with people who hate you. As children of the righteous one, we are especially hated by the evil one. He hates all of us because we're created in God's image. So he hates humans, but he really hates those who no longer belong to his kingdom. The Bible describes him as a disparager, the accuser of the brethren, the destroyer. The Hebrew name is Abaddon. The Greek is Apollyon, the destroyer. He's a deceiver. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. He's a devourer. Peter said to be alert because your enemy, the devil, is roaming around like a hungry lion, just looking for someone to devour. Our enemy is real. Jesus spoke about him, not some concept, but the person of the devil. We see this consistently throughout the scripture. It's not just one. He has legions of devils at his disposal, but he doesn't even need them because he has the world and your own flesh. And he is seeking to destroy you. He uses the means of deception and distraction and discouragement to do it. So how then, if he is evil and he has these flaming arrows and I have to make a choice to take up this shield of faith, how do I do it? How do I, how do I take up the shield of faith? First, actively pursue greater knowledge of God's word. Actively pursue greater knowledge of God's word. Study the Bible. Listen to sermons. Get into a small group study. Try to go deeper, right? Don't just pick up a verse off of a, you saw it on a coffee mug, and oh, this is my life verse. Okay, that's nifty. That's not extinguishing any flaming arrows. I want a 7,000 promise faith. 
actively pursue greater knowledge of God's word. Secondly, memorize as much scripture as I can. How am I going to take up the shield of faith? I need to have more than just seen it. I need to get it in me. I need to hide God's word in my heart so that I don't sin against him. When I have it in me, and I've put the word in my mind, and I've wrestled with it, and I've embraced it, and I've, I've committed it to memory, I know it, as it were, by heart then I have a shield that is ready, always with me, ready to use. Memorize as much scripture as I can. Third, I need to remind myself of what is real in spite of what seems real. I have to actively make the choice in the middle of my feelings and my circumstances to remind myself of what is real in spite of what seems real. For me to do that, I have to actively pursue greater knowledge. I need to memorize as much as I can. And then when I've got it, I need to choose to remember it. Two things that go along with this. I need to remind myself of who God is and who I am in Christ. I need to remind myself of who God is and who I am in Christ. When I know the character of God, I know that He does not, cannot lie. He cannot fail. He created the heavens and earth. He is amazing. And I choose to put my trust in Him alone. I remind myself of who He is. And I choose to let go of who I was. I no longer see myself through the lens of earthly identities. I no longer worry about my skin color, my economic status, my, my political persuasion, my denomination, if I have the right shoes, if I have pretty enough hair. I, I don't, I'm not looking at those things anymore. I remember, I remind myself, over and over, remind myself, what does the scripture say about who I am in Christ? Secondly, I need to preach the gospel to myself regularly. I need to preach the gospel to myself regularly. It's not just preaching to others. I need to remind myself of what it means to be saved. How did I get saved? How do I take hold of this identity? Preach the gospel to myself regularly. This reminds me of what is real in spite of what seems real. Lastly, or almost lastly, I need to choose to act on what I say I believe. I need to choose to act on what I say I believe. If I claim to have faith, if I claim to be in Christ, but I live in disobedience, I'm still calling the shots. I'm holding on to my will. Then I'm undermining my own efforts at faith. I'm not taking up the shield of faith. I'm relying on my own will. I need to choose to act on what I say I believe. And as I act on those beliefs, I strengthen my belief in them. Now there's one more crucial choice that enables me to take up the shield of faith. So if you're taking notes in your program, do this. Uh, if you're taking notes on the app, then you can do that where it says your notes. But 
If, you're, if you are taking notes, do this. Draw a big circle around these action steps that we just talked about, how I can take up the shield of faith. Draw a big circle around those. Then in the margin, below it or on the side, wherever you've got space, write this. Commit to body life. Commit to body life. Make sure that you connect that to this circle. I take up the shield of faith by doing these things and by committing myself to life in the body, to the church. And if you want to clarify it, you might add, encourage one another. You see, God gives us one another to strengthen our faith. In Hebrews 10, when we're told not to forsake assembling together, part of that is so that we can spur one another on to good works. So that we can encourage one another. We build one another up in the body. Commit to body life by encouraging one another. Throughout this letter, throughout the entire New Testament, we see a primary, central, consistent emphasis on the corporate life of the church, the body of Christ. There is never, anywhere in the Bible, a de-emphasizing of the body life in Scripture. Not at all. That's something we've done as jaded humans, often due to our own hurts, often due to our own sinful pride and idols of independence and individualism. That's why we here in the West tend to do that more often than those in other cultures, because we're so fixated on our rugged individualism, our independence. And I'm not even telling you there's anything wrong with that. But when it dominates our thinking at the expense of corporate life, it becomes an idol. I was tempted to call this point stay in formation because it reminds me of one very distinctive use of the large shields. Maybe you've seen this in some movies. The legions would often use them in what was called a testudo or a tortoise formation by sticking close together, aligning the shields as one across the front line and and overhead they'd hold them over their heads and they'd be tight together and this formed what kind of resembled a tortoise shell it protected them from the onslaught of arrows or thrown projectiles the church is called to form up as one strengthening and protecting one another in our closeness when we're together the enemy has a much more difficult time inflicting his spiritual damage as I wrap this up, our memory verse for today is Psalm 33:20. As Jeff read for us earlier, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. We wait in hope for the Lord. That's the choice to have faith, the choice to trust despite what our feelings tell us, knowing that He is our help and our shield. Many of the great hymns of the church remind me of how to do this. A mighty fortress is our God, standing on the promises, faith is the victory, so many others. One that I think captures this idea well is trust and obey. I'm going to close by reading it for you. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust 
and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now this presumes, this hymn is written for the believer. We don't find happiness in Jesus by working our way up to him. It it presumes that we are in Jesus, that we are in Christ, as Paul's been talking about throughout Ephesians. And everything that he's talking about in these later chapters, 4, 5, and 6, has to do with those who are already in Christ. How do you protect yourself from the devil? It starts by being in Christ. If we are in Christ, then we walk with the Lord. If we are not, then we cannot. As we read in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. I can't do anything to please God without faith. Until I'm in Christ, even my very best is sinful. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth, quick, he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But, and, and I think maybe the last verse is my favorite. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There are a lot of Christians walking around with a sourpuss face. There are a lot of Christians walking around struggling with why life is miserable. Now I expect that from the world. If I don't have Christ and, I, and all I see is the world around me, man, depression makes a lot of sense. But if I'm in Christ, if I have received the grace of God, recognizing that he loved me as a sinner while I was his enemy enough to send his son to die for me, then he must love me more than I can comprehend. How could anything else that happens in my life possibly have escaped his notice? Therefore, if he's allowing this to happen to me now that I'm his child, it must be for my ultimate good and his ultimate glory. That kind of love is huge. So if I'm going to be happy in Jesus, if I'm going to live a life of victory and freedom, that means I'm going to have to say, I don't care what I see. I don't care what it feels like. I'm choosing to believe what God said. He is my help and my shield and nothing will shake me. Therefore, I will obey him. The devil attacks with lies. We defeat his attacks with truth. The reality of God is our protection. We defeat the enemy's attacks by clinging to the truth of God no matter what. We overcome the enemy's attacks by knowing and choosing the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we have a lot of feelings that swirl around inside of us. We have a lot of circumstances that swirl around outside of us. And so we choose to put our trust in you alone. You're our hope. 
We're not going to prop ourselves up with the things of this world. We're not going to worry about the things that are going to pass. Father, we know that one of these days we're going to be with you face to face. And we recognize that what seems real often is not. So we choose you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.